This episode of Inside Oz contains strong language as well as discussions about strong violence and sexual content. Five hours to dawn and I gotta be in a goddamn glass box with the king of sticks. And you know, you know, it's so fucking clean and righteous, man. You said, I, I, got, I got demons clawing at my ass. The streets I was selling dope, as bad as any of those homeboys. Fucking kill the cop! Fuck you, governor. And what is your problem, man? I'm just fucking ass. I wish I could, man. I got potatoes to peel. Yeah, you can be a phone number and an address. Word. Bet you wouldn't mind that. Yeah, thanks for the stimulating conversation, guys. You guys like goats. You know, you got to bring everything down to the level of a goat. Titties and humping. Sex offender. Shit all over, man. It's not normal. I am black. I am a Muslim and I am a man. And sometimes those two things, they won't. It's about the whole horrid judicial system. Welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. Unfortunately, I've got some sad news to start off this episode. This past week we lost a member of our family following the death of my horse, Luther. He hadn't been in the family long, I only picked him up just after last Christmas last year, but he had become a dependable part of my day-to-day. Ever since I purchased him from the stable, we had taken the, the time to bond together, I'd often give him a pat before mounting up for a ride, he'd enjoy a nibble of some ginseng or some sage as we rode down paths, and he could really get some speed up once he got going. One day recently, on our way into town, we came across some men that I had had a previous run-in with, and in an act of absolute cowardice, they shot poor Luther, and he quickly passed away. Luckily, I was able to fight these men off, but poor Luther was gone. He'd been with me since the start, and was a dependable steed. I made my way into town, the nearby Valentine, and was able to purchase a new horse, and since this encounter, I've managed to complete the main story of Red Dead Redemption 2, but Luther will never be replaced. On to this episode though, Series 2, Episode 6, Strange Bedfellows. Tom Fontana getting the lone writing credit here, but I believe there were some other writers involved with the writing of this episode, although I couldn't find any names to go with that. Despite there being original writers on the show at this point, and I found this to be quite interesting, unless you write more than 50% of an episode, then credit goes to the executive producer. So while I've been saying these episodes have been written by Tom Fontana, which is where the credit is given, It would be interesting to know how much he has actually written compared to how much was contributed by the other writers in the room. The episode was written by Alan Taylor, who is back to direct his second episode of the show, his last one being the sixth episode of Series 1, To Your Health. Holding an 8.3 on IMDb, the episode first aired on August 17th, 1998, a day in which the Federal Reserve Board agreed the merger between Bank America and Nations Bank, spy satellites detected a secret underground complex in North Korea suspected of being involved in the nuclear weapons program, NATO forces undertook the first of a five-day exercise in Albania as a threat to ongoing military action in Serbia, and President Bill Clinton finally admitted to being a very naughty boy. Following a closed-circuit TV testimony to a grand jury concerning his relations with White House intern Monica Lewinsky, President Clinton would later that night address the nation. Good evening. This afternoon in this room, from this chair, I testified before the Office of Independent Counsel and the grand jury. I answered their questions truthfully. 
including questions about my private life, questions no American citizen would ever want to answer. Still, I must take complete responsibility for all my actions, both public and private. And that is why I am speaking to you tonight. As you know, in a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. But I told the grand jury today, and I say to you now, that at no time did I ask anyone to lie, to hide or destroy evidence, or to take any other unlawful action. I know that my public comments and my silence about this matter gave a false impression. I misled people, including even my wife. I deeply regret that. So now the president has come clean, let's get on with the show. You made your bed, now lie in it. Anybody tell me what the fuck that means? You don't go through the trouble of making your bed, smoothing out the sheets, fluffing up the pillows, just to ruin it all by lying down. The phrase should be, you laid in your bed, now make it. The point being, you got to be responsible for your actions. Responsible. So Act 1 gets underway with Augustus pondering a saying that I too have never understood, and he also has some strangely coincidental words of advice for President Clinton about taking responsibility for your actions. We open up in the gym with some of the Aryans looking over at Schillinger talking with Saeed, who seems to have decided that he is going to defend Schillinger's case. Saeed is not the first example of a jailhouse lawyer. Mary McCain wrote an article for the Cincinnati Inquirer in 2002 detailing the case of Charles Steele, who was accused of a rape and kidnap back in 1994. While serving time in prison on an unrelated crime, Steele waived his right to legal counsel and attempted to defend himself, citing the Sixth Amendment, which guarantees the right to a lawyer, as well as a ruling passed by the US Supreme Court in 1975 following the case of Ferretta v. California. However, his request was denied on the grounds that the judge didn't feel that Steele would be able to adequately defend himself. Furthermore, there was the possibility, even though Steele would have been defending himself, under law his conviction could have been overturned on appeal because of inadequate representation. Not only are the Aryans unsure about this newfound alliance, Arif also seems unsure what Saeed's motives are pursuing the case. At lunch later that day we see Arif question Saeed about the situation, and we also cut to a conversation between Schillinger and Mac who is asking similar questions. Saeed tells his group that, like it or not, that man is a child of God, and that he has made a commitment to Allah to defend the rights of all prisoners in Oz, not just the ones of colour or that share their ideology, while Schillinger isn't hiding the fact that he is basically using Saeed to get him out of Oz. Cut to Leo's office where he, McManus, Diane and Pat Fortunato, the lawyer that defeated Saeed at Augusta's hearing, are talking about Saeed defending Schillinger. Leo seems as surprised as anyone that Saeed is defending Schillinger, and McManus asks if this is one of the predictions Nostradamus made, and that we're two steps closer to the end of the world, which was a great line. Nostradamus, of course, referring to Michel de Nostradamus, the French astronomer and physician from the 1500s, who some believe to have correctly predicted key events in world history, such as the Great Fire of London, the rise of Adolf Hitler, the atomic bomb, the assassination of JFK, and 9-11, to name just a few. 
Also the inspiration for Judas Priest's questionable concept album from 2008, but don't go out of your way to listen to that one. Pat says that unlike Augustus hearing, this is going to be a jury trial, and says that Saeed is a powerful speaker who could sway the jurors. He tells Diane that she and McManus have to give another deposition statement detailing how they trapped Schillinger as part of the plot to kill Beecher. He mentions that the judge will bring up the Scott Ross killing and tells them to be ready. McManus and Diane exchange a long stare at each other, the Scott Ross shooting obviously still being a stumbling block between the two of them. Out in the hallway, McManus asks Diane about whether or not she is worried about being questioned about Scott, and Diane tells him that she isn't. McManus clearly is bothered though, and says to her that the last time he was asked about the shooting, he testified that he didn't know anything, whereas this time he knows the truth and will be under oath, and asks Diane if she is wanting him to perjure himself. The sentence for perjury, in which you knowingly give a false testimony, carries a fine and between one and five years in prison, depending on how the perjury affects the outcome of the case being tried, and much like with other crimes I've mentioned, varies from state to state. Diane asks McManus to cut the shit, knowing that he is going to say that he has a moral code to uphold, but she is going to ask him to lie anyway. She then plays the If You Love Me card, saying that if McManus ever loved her, then he will lie for her. We see flashbacks of Diane Schilling a meeting and discussing killing Beecher as she gives her testimony to Saeed. She says that Schilling offered to pay her to kill Beecher as Saeed questions her if she agreed to that. Diane tells him yes, but that she only did in order to stop Schillinger. Saeed plays a recording of Diane and Schillinger talking, the one in which Schillinger is all, yep, I wanted him dead alright, and Saeed mentions that this is from their second conversation about killing Beecher, and points out that they don't have a recording of the first conversation, and asks if it was in fact Diane that approached Schillinger. She tells him no, as Saeed then asks about whether or not she had asked Schillinger how much he would pay to kill Beecher. Diane once again tells him no, as that would be entrapment, which is true and shows that Diane has prepared carefully for this interrogation. Saeed mentions again about Schillinger offering to pay Diane, and questions if he offered anything else. And Diane tells Saeed about how Schillinger said he would tell people that she killed Scott Ross if she didn't help him. Saeed asks, did that factor into your decision to trick him? Diane once again saying no, and that it wasn't true, and that no matter what Schillinger says or thinks he saw, she didn't kill anyone. I love the irony that Diane is in a position where she is being truthful, yet is desperate for McManus to lie. They would be completely home and dry if not for Scott's death looming over proceedings, which is all of Diane's doing. The person most conflicted in all of this is the person who seems hellbent on doing the right thing. We then get to hear McManus deliver his testimony to Saeed. So Officer Widdlesley is in general uh, a trustworthy person. Yes. She's never lied to you. I didn't say that. So she has lied to you. Mm-hmm. She lied to you regarding Vern Schillinger? You mean him wanting to kill Beecher? Yes. No. So she told you the absolute truth about her reasons for accepting his offer? I assume so. You assume so? Yes. So was one of those reasons the fact that Schillinger knew Widdlesley murdered Ross? You mean, did she say to me that was one of her reasons? Yes. No. Did Widdlesley murder Ross? Murder? Yes. To the best of your knowledge, Diane Widdlesley shoot Scott Ross with the intention of ending his life. No. 
McManus plays an absolute blinder here, and much like Diane, he obviously prepared very carefully, but he does a great job of using Saeed's lack of experience of a lawyer against him. Saeed should never have allowed for McManus to be in a position where he can ask questions about what Saeed means. Any lawyer worth their salt would have taken control of the line of questioning and not allowed for themselves to fall into this trap. It just serves as a reminder that Saeed is very much an amateur when it comes to being a lawyer. So after he and McManus have lost the yes-no game in spectacular fashion, Saeed heads off to meet up with Schillinger in the library. Schillinger asks how things went, but Saeed tells him that he doesn't have a case. Adebisi is sat behind listening to his headphones really loud, and Schillinger even turns around to tell him to turn them down. He hasn't actually got them over his ears, they're just underneath, which is something similar to what I used to do. I used to go around with one headphone in so that I could still hear stuff going on around me, which is so daft when I think back. I was also trying to work out what Adebisi was listening to, but it just sounds like some generic hip-hop beat. Saeed tells Schillinger that they have evidence, witnesses, and the tape recording of Schillinger admitting to the plan but Schillinger says there must be some sort of loophole they can exploit. Saeed, however, tells Schillinger that he is going to be convicted of the conspiracy to commit murder charge and will receive the full 10 years. Schillinger laments that it might as well be life and that he'll never get to see his kids, before he raises the point about Diane killing Scott, but Saeed says it's Schillinger's word against theirs and that without proof, Schillinger's word is meaningless. Adebisi takes great joy in telling Schillinger that he has no case, and Saeed tells him that he is withdrawing from the case entirely. Schillinger says that Saeed pulling out only compounds his guilt, as Saeed tells him once again that he will not fight the lost battle. Schillinger then accuses Saeed of throwing the case deliberately, and that he only took the case on so that he could pull out, and in the process make things worse, but Saeed tells him that things couldn't be worse. Saeed says that he wasn't sure before, but now he knows that Schillinger is truly guilty. They each accuse the other of using them as Saeed leaves, telling Schillinger that life is balance, as Schillinger calls him the N-word on the way out. Adebisi has one more laugh at Schillinger, saying, you just lost your balance. Great little scene here between JK and Eamon, they have great chemistry together, and Adewali has Adebisi chuckling away to himself, giving pure white power Schillinger shit for his dependency on a black man to fight his battle really added to things too. The life is balanced line from Saeed, I was convinced that was going to be another philosophical quote of some kind, but it doesn't seem to be, or at least it isn't in the way that he says it. There are a ton of quotes about life being in balance attributed to a number of different gurus and philosophers, but the way it's used here seems to be a Kareem Saeed original. There is, however, a company called Life is Balanced based in Sheffield who seem to specialise in the sale of smoking and herbal products, so go check them out if you're into that kind of thing. Augustus narrates about William Shakespeare leaving his second best bed to his wife Anne Hathaway, not to be confused with the Hollywood actress, as we see McManus and Diane exchange glances, him looking on from his office window as she is leaving through the M-City gates. We cut to death row where Shirley is boiling a kettle to make some tea. Quite why she is allowed to have these things is a mystery, but it's most likely a present from one of the guards. She looks in her mirror and sees Diane looking back at her, who then tries to make a quick exit. Shirley asks if Diane needed anything, before saying that she is in need of a friend. Diane bluntly tells her that she isn't going to be her friend, and then asks Shirley if she sleeps at night, and how that's possible after what she did to her daughter. Shirley reaffirms her stance that her daughter's death was an accident when she is asked about it, but she tells Diane that it wasn't an accident at all, but it had to happen, and it had to be, and because of that, she manages to sleep. She places her hand on Diane's hand through the cell bars, as Diane offers no response before leaving. A guard brings Shirley her meal, and he's all, Hi, Shirley, clearly infatuated with her, and she thanks him by calling him Sweetie. 
Shirley sits down to eat her meal, and she's got quite a spread going on there. She's got a sandwich, she's got a bread roll, some lettuce, a juice drink, and some sort of brown slop. She finds a letter underneath a sandwich which reads, I love you. She seems flattered by it and tears out a page from a notebook and writes a letter back saying I love you too, and places it under the bread roll and her tray is taken back to the kitchen. The shot of Shirley placing the letter back and the tray being wheeled back to the kitchen happens as one shot, so either Shirley has got really long Inspector Gadget arms or there's some sort of Inception shit going on here. It's actually quite a good swerve with these letters, with how the guard brings Shirley her tray to begin with, to then have the reveal of Adebisi being the one that sent the note. Shirley also doesn't seem to eat much at all. Out of all of that food, she's only taken one bite out of a sandwich. I could understand leaving the brown slot, but everything else seemed perfectly edible. Adebisi finds Shirley's letter and kisses it before placing in his hat for safekeeping. Also left me wondering whether or not Adebisi's hat works similar to Mary Poppins' bag and what else he might be storing in there. He's also taken a holding a toothpick between his teeth, similar to Razor Ramon, which I quite liked. We pan up to McManus' office, where he is tucking into his own lunch, and Leo is looking down on the kitchen from the window, and they're joined by Lenny Barano, back for the first time since Series 1, Episode 7, Plan B. Lenny says that Shibeta was definitely poisoned and is due out of hospital that day. Leo asks about the test results, and Leo tells him that it's the same poison that was used on the rats in the kitchen, and that just before Shibeta got sick, he ate a chocolate bar that was given to him by Adebisi, and he says that it's pretty clear that Adebisi did it. McManus interrupts saying, how do you know? And that anyone could have put the poison on the bar before Adebisi got it out of the box. And as we've seen with McManus and Lenny before, the two of them clash. Lenny saying that everyone knows about the problems between Shibeta and Adebisi, while McManus says that their problems are circumstantial. Like I say, you might remember that Lenny and McManus have clashed before when Lenny mentioned about McManus not coming up through the ranks. It's also interesting that you can see things from both of their viewpoints here. Lenny is completely correct with what he is saying about Adebisi poisoning Shibeta, but much like with Leo and the issue that he had with proving that Schillinger and the Aryans killed Vogel, Lenny hasn't got the evidence to back it up, whereas McManus is playing the good cop saying that they need the crucial evidence and everything else is a coincidence. Leo tells Lenny to keep investigating and that they'll deal with Adebisi if they get any solid evidence, otherwise the whole thing will go into the Unsolved Mysteries file. Lenny looks back at McManus, who somehow manages to pull off being a smug prick without even looking at Lenny. It's amazing. Speaking of unsolved mysteries, something I noticed recently when going over show notes. Whatever happened to D'Angelo, who used to run the gambling racket and work the kitchen? He had a quote-unquote accident at the hands of Adebisi and Kenny back in episode 4 of series 1, but he hasn't been seen since. He went into the hospital only to never return or be mentioned again. Perhaps once Peter Shibeta came into Oz and took over the Italians, he cast D'Angelo out for not looking after his father's welfare properly. It's never explained, and D'Angelo seems to have vanished into thin air. Lenny goes to talk with Shibeta in the hospital, and as with other times on the show, a little bit of racist language in this clip, just so you know. Hey. What do you want? To tell you that Glenn ain't doing dick about what happened. It's fine, I'll take care of it myself. How? What did you say? Peter. The family is embarrassed. They got no reason to be embarrassed. They're happy with the way that you're running things in here. They blame me for getting poisoned? Your father got fed ground glass over the course of months. Now, whoever did that, probably out of BC. Took the time because they knew that Nino was watching. Nino was smart. 
And so, because I got one quick shot of poison instead of ground glass, I'm not as good as pop, right? This is what they say. The family. Chris. You tell them I'm gonna handle that busy. I want to get my honor back by the end of today. Either that fucking movie or me is gonna be in a body bag. So as was alluded to when the character was first introduced, Lenny Barana is in fact working with the Italians, not just simply being on the payroll, but he actually seems to be connected in some way as he keeps mentioning about the family. Of course, the world was about to go gangster crazy again as the first series of The Sopranos was being filmed around the time of this episode airing and would premiere on HBO in January of 1999 between series two and three of Oz and Scarface had just been released on DVD for the first time in 1998 as well. So the mafia and gangsters and all that jazz was about to become in vogue again over the next few months. Cut to M-City where Kenny and Augustus are watching TV and they see Poet giving some sort of speech. And Kenny seems really happy for Poet and mentions about him wearing a tuxedo. While Miguel and Chico walk by and Miguel cryptically mentions about some serious shit going down as we then see Shibeta walk by the Aryans who are teasing about a lunch being an arsenic special. He looks up at the balcony and sees Adebisi looking back at him, and he's doing his little hip gyration dance. We get a quick shot of Shibeta in bed looking frustrated and trying to figure out what he's going to do about Adebisi before we cut to the next day in the kitchen. Adebisi and his crew come in to set up for breakfast, and while Kenny and one of the group heads to the freezer to grab some food, Adebisi heads into the pantry by himself. A guard stands the other side of the pantry fence as Chucky comes around the corner, and Adebisi tells him good morning before mentioning that Chucky doesn't work there anymore. Chucky says that he has a job to do as Shibeta enters the pantry, closing the fence door behind him, and the guard runs out of the kitchen. I'm guessing we're supposed to believe that this guard let Chucky into the pantry beforehand, otherwise Chucky would have had to have sneaked in there at some point during the night, which would have also meant that he would have needed to be let out of his pod. Or he missed the count entirely and he's been hiding in there all night. Either way, Adebisi seems to be cornered, but he quickly grabs some sort of tin opener out of its slot to use as a weapon. He takes a swipe at Shibeta, who ducks out of the way, before landing a clean shot on Chucky. Shibeta grabs Adebisi from behind, but he is quickly overpowered, and Adebisi headbutts him, which makes Shibeta fall through the pantry door. Chucky attacks from behind, getting in a couple of good body shots, but Adebisi manages to grab a massive tin of Del Monte pineapple chunks and whacks Chucky in the face with them repeatedly, leaving Chucky a twitching mess on the floor. He tells Chucky to stay down before spitting on him, and then turns his attention to Shibeta. An evil smile creeps across Adebisi's face, and you can tell what's coming just from that. He pushes everything off of the kitchen worktop and grabs Shibeta, leaning him over the surface. He pulls Shibeta's trousers down, laughing maniacally as he puts his headphones on. Adding insult to injury, he spanks Shibeta on the ass and then proceeds to rape him, Shibeta letting out a terrifying scream. This scene was absolutely horrific, and while there have been mentions and implications of rape occurring on us prior to this, this is the first time that we've actually seen it on screen. I can't recall exactly how many times we see a rape happen on screen. It might be a couple more times, but this one in particular really sticks, perhaps due to it being the first time we see it, or maybe just due to the horrific nature of it. I'm not put off by much when I'm watching films or TV. I'm not a squeamish person, but whenever there is a rape scene, always feel uneasy. It's such, and I know I've used this word already, but it's horrific. And credit to Adewale and Eddie for being able to go through with this, and the same goes for any actors that take part in a scene like this. It must be so hard to do. 
as I've mentioned previously, being on HBO worked to the show's advantage with a scene like this. It's graphic for the time, and had the show been on network TV, would have had to have been shot very differently if it was to be shown at all. There's always the chance that the rib would have been implied rather than shown. So no sooner is he left the hospital after being poisoned, Shibeta is back in the hospital, and Chucky is wheeled in next to him. Lenny and Leo looking on from the side, Lenny explaining that Shibeta and Chucky were found unconscious, and Shibeta was bleeding from his rectum, and says that he could have been ripped. Leo with a quote of the century, What do you mean, cut it? As Lenny explains that Shibeta has said that he doesn't know what happened, and won't talk about it. Leo says that Shibeta knows, he just doesn't want to admit that he took one up the arse, and that he'll just look to get even rather than talk. Leo says that he's going to fire the guy that let this happen, as Lenny goes over to talk to Shibeta to close out Act 1. Peter. Peter. I just talked to the family. You're out. Somebody else is going to be taking over operations here in Oz. Don't tell my father, okay? Don't tell my father. So Shibeta is out, and it remains to be seen who's going to take over the Italians. Him mentioning Don't Tell My Father, I assume, is referring to the godfather of the family, as obviously Nino, his biological father, is long dead at this point. So Act 2 gets underway back in M-City when Miguel is playing cards with Chico, and he describes the look that he saw in Shibeta's eyes, and then he notices Adebisi walking by. Miguel gets up and says, hey partner, but Adebisi laughs at him, saying they're not partners because Miguel didn't kill Shibeta like he asked. Chico asks why Miguel lets Adebisi give him shit all the time and asks if he's afraid of him. Miguel tells Chico to fuck off as he throws his cards at him, and says that he isn't afraid of anyone. So with Shibeta out of the picture and some dissension in the ranks of the Latinos, we could see the start of a power shift in M-City. The Aryans are clawing their way back slowly but surely, and news will no doubt travel fast about Adebisi making strides. In the gym, Chico gets into a fight with an inmate seemingly over nothing, and later on in the cafeteria he's saying he's going to kill the guy. Miguel tells him that he isn't going to kill anybody, and that when the Latinos kill, they do it for a reason. Chico says that he has a reason, but Miguel dismisses him, saying that he hasn't got shit, and he isn't prepared to go for war over Chico's bullshit. Chico asks him what it's going to take to go to war, and the other Latinos are looking on unimpressed. Which is all well and good, but it's not like they've made any sort of impact. The rest of the Latino gang are a bunch of nobodies at this point. However, we get the crime flashback of Raul Hernandez, aka El Cid, translated to mean the Lord, or the Master, played here by Luis Guzman. So El Cid is in for the crime of murder in the second degree, sentenced to 36 years, up for parole in 20, and we see him impaling a man with a metal bar puts him over immediately as a huge threat to anyone in Oz. It's a great introduction to the character. I also quite like the camera push in on him as the other actors remain still. Well, I say still. One guy has to move his hand out of the way just slightly so that the camera can get by. It's at least something a little different that they're trying. The backwards leather paddy cap looked fucking ridiculous, though. Nobody looks tough wearing one of those. So Louise Guzman playing the part of El Cid here. 
Born August 28, 1956 in Calle, Puerto Rico, Guzman was raised in the Greenwich Village area of New York's Lower Manhattan district between the Hudson and East Rivers. His mother worked in a hospital while his father was a TV repairman. Guzman got his acting start working in street theatre while also working as a social worker, and his first credited film role came in 1977's Short Eyes, an adaptation of Miguel Pinheiro's play. His first credit on TV came in 1985 in the first season of The Equalizer. Other film appearances include 1987's Batteries Not Included, Crocodile Dundee 2 in 1988, while in the early 90s Guzman made a number of appearances in small roles on TV including two episodes of Law & Order, Civil Wars, NYPD Blue, and Walker Texas Ranger. Following an appearance in 1991's The Hard Way, a film which also featured an appearance by this episode's guest star, who I will talk about more later on, Guzman's first prominent role came in 1993's Carlito's Way, where he played Pachanga and in 1995 appeared alongside John Leguizamo in Fox's short-lived sketch comedy, House of Buggin. In 1997, Guzman appeared in Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, which won a Screen Actors Guild Award in 1998 for outstanding performance by a cast. Some names with whom he shared that award include Philip Seymour Hoffman, William H. Macy, Alfred Molina, Julianne Moore, John C. Riley, Burt Reynolds and Mark Wahlberg. It's also a very good film, check it out if you've never seen it. In 1998, Guzman made appearances in Out of Sight and Snake Eyes, and on TV in Trinity and King of New York before appearing here on ours. So El Cid is introduced to Miguel, who has been assigned as his M-City sponsor. Miguel tells him that it's an honour to meet him, so El Cid obviously has some sort of reputation on the outside with the other Latinos. He asks Miguel, is he Latino, and Miguel tells him yes. But El Cid then says, they lied to you, you're too fucking white to be Latino, and to get the fuck out of his face. Miguel just stands there and takes it. He has no answer to that. He's completely had his balls cut off by a man he met just seconds earlier. El Cid meets up with the rest of the Latinos in M-City and shakes their hand, and how he can say that Miguel is too white to be Latino but seems completely fine with Luis Batista is beyond me. Luis Batista's like a fucking milk bottle compared to Miguel. We see that Miguel has been made to carry in El Cid's bedding and his toilet roll, so it's clear that there is a new leader in the Latino group, as Augustus gives us some facts about the Lincoln bedroom of the White House. Rumor mill says the President of the United States gets people to donate cash in return for spending a night in the Lincoln bedroom. But Lincoln never slept in the Lincoln bedroom. Lincoln never even slept in the bed that's in the Lincoln bedroom. How dumb do you got to be to give hard or soft money for a decent place to crash and it's false advertising? Shit. You wanna pay the snooze in my room? Jeffrey Dahmer lived there. Hey, Al Capone too. Fuck, for a couple of extra bucks, I get the ghost of Jesse fucking James to float on by. Cut to nighttime and that officer with the amazing mustache is patrolling M City as Rebido keeps watch from his pod window. Only to then hear Boos Marley saying, uh-oh, from inside the tunnel. He says that he nearly burst a water pipe, but luckily saw it in time. Rebido tells him that he's beginning to have second thoughts, and is worried that they're going to get caught because they have a hole the size of the Holland Tunnel in their pod. The Holland Tunnel runs underneath the Hudson River, connecting Manhattan on the east end and Jersey City, New Jersey to the west. Plans for the tunnel were originally devised in 1906, however a number of disagreements delayed the planning process until 1919, with construction getting underway the following year. The tunnel opened in 1927 and at the time was the longest continuous underwater vehicle tunnel in the world, running 1.6 miles, and cost 50 cents in each direction. 
These days you only have to pay when travelling east into New York and it will cost you a mere $15, while the longest underground vehicle tunnel is Japan's Seikan Tunnel, which runs 33.4 miles, however that is a train tunnel. The longest tunnel with access for cars is the 15.2 mile long Lardell Tunnel in Norway. Busmalis tells him to be quiet and that she'll hear you, and that he treats every hole that he digs like a lady. And he mentions that he never married because he could never find a real woman that could satisfy him the way the hole does, and then he heads back underground. Ribido gets in bed saying, yeah, I bet there are a ton of women broken-hearted to have lost you, and he covers his ears with his pillow. Great little scene between these two again, they're always good for a laugh to break up the bleak and the misery of other goings-on. And it keeps Busmalis digging the hole in our consciousness. Cut to a flashback of a poker game with some guy dressed like a pimp, and he seems to be set to clear up at the table, having been dealt four aces and a king. The odds of being dealt four aces in a five-card hand are 1 in 54,145, so either he is a very lucky boy, or there have been some shenanigans going on. And lo and behold, he's rumbled as someone finds another ace tucked away up his sleeve. He and one of the men he's playing against both reach for a gun, and we then get the introduction of this episode's guest star, LL Cool J, playing the part of Jiggy Walker. James Todd Smith, better known by his stage name LL Cool J, was born January 14th, 1968 in the Bayshore area of Long Island, New York, and had a tough upbringing when at the age of four he found his mother and grandmother suffering from gunshot wounds after a fight with his father. He began rapping at age 9, and by the age of 16 was making his own demo tapes, using equipment that his grandfather had bought him, and began sending them to various record companies in the New York area, including the newly formed label Def Jam Recordings. LL Cool J, an abbreviation of Ladies Love Cool James, released I Need a Beat in 1984, his first single for Def Jam. Selling over 100,000 copies, the single was instrumental in Def Jam reaching a distribution with Columbia Records in 1985. Later that year, in October, Jay also appeared as himself in the film Crush Grove, based on the early days of Def Jam recordings and record producer Russell Simmons. November 1985 also saw Jay, at just 17 years old, release his debut album, Radio, which was also Def Jam's first full album release. A critical and commercial success, Radio sold over half a million copies in its first five months, and was nominated for Best Rap Album at the Soul Train Music Awards. Jay's second album, 1987's Bigger and Deffer, sold over 2 million copies in the US alone, and won the Soul Train Music Award in 1988 for Best Rap Album, as well as an award for the single I Need Love. While his 1989 album, Walking with a Panther, was greeted with mixed reviews, in 1990 Jay released his fourth album, Mama Said Knock You Out, and proved a turning point in Jay's career, showing the ability to stay relevant despite the misgivings of his previous work. In 1991, Mama Said Knock You Out won Jay's first MTV Video Music Award for Best Rap Solo Video, as well as his first Grammy Award in 1992 for Best Rap Solo Performance. 1992 also saw Jay make an appearance in the Barry Levinson-directed movie Toys, playing the part of Captain Patrick Zevo. Jay released 14 Shots to the Dome in 1993 before making his acting breakthrough with his own sitcom In the House, where he starred as Marion Hill and aired on NBC for two seasons before moving to UPN. During the show's second season, Jay released his sixth album, Mr. Smith, and in 1997 appeared in the film Baps, playing himself, as well as releasing his seventh album, Phenomenon. In 1998, Jay appeared in the crime drama Caught Up, playing the part of Roger, as himself in the sketch comedy series All That, and the movie Halloween H2O 20 years later, bizarrely released in August a couple of weeks before this episode aired. So Jiggy Walker, much like El Cid, is in for murder in the second degree, with a sentence of 28 years up for parole in 20. 
So going off of what we see in their respective flashbacks, I'm assuming that Jiggy has eight years fewer on his sentence due to having a gun drawn on him, perhaps claiming that he shot his gun in some sort of self-defence. Whereas El Cid we saw murder a man in cold blood, and he had two people assisting him. The man who Jiggy is trying to rip off in his card game is played by Chuck Jeffries, who worked on a number of episodes of Oz doing various stunts, and is a noted martial artist, earning an 8th degree black belt in Shaolin Wushu. Jiggy has been lumped with Rebido as a sponsor, and he's asking what Jiggy is in Oz for. Jiggy says it doesn't matter, and that he's really in Oz because he knows too much. Rebido asks him what about, but Jiggy shushes him because he doesn't want the guards hearing. Once they've got a little more privacy, Rebido asks him again, and Jiggy says that he knows stuff about Governor Devlin, most notably that Devlin is a massive crack addict. Rebido doesn't believe him and asks how he would know that, with Jiggy saying that he was Devlin's dealer. Rebido goes to tell Saeed about Jiggy's allegations, while Jiggy is playing cards with O'Reilly, Keller and Beecher. Jiggy seems to have beaten the 1 in 54,145 odds again by being dealt four aces, but Keller says, hang on a minute, I've got an ace. Before any fights can break out though from this game, Saeed comes over and asks Jiggy if they can go and talk privately. I understand you have some information regarding the governor James Devlin. Information of a damaging nature. Damaging? Depends on how you view crack. Well, my guess is the voters would frown upon their chief executive doing street drugs. I want this information to go public. I don't know, Saeed. Send it for me. Send it for you. If we create a tidal wave, and we sweep Governor Devlin right out of office, you might find yourself released. How? I have connections within the media. This time tomorrow morning, you might find yourself the most famous man in the state. Snick. <laughs> me. A celebrity like Oprah. Oh, yes, my brother. <laughs> but what I need from you is this. Dates, times, places of your business transactions with Governor Devlin. I can't be exact. It's not like we kept records and such. Are there any other witnesses to corroborate your story? Scatter do that. Who's scared? It's my cousin. Works post office, priority mail division. Okay. I'll make some calls. Be prepared to do a lot of interviews, my brother. Bring them on, baby. I got plenty to say and plenty of time to say it. Arif, can I see you, please? My nigga. <laughs> Cut to a staff meeting in the library, and McManus practically skips in carrying the newspaper, which has Jiggy's allegations plastered all over the front page. And Lenny says that he also saw it on TV, and Sister Pete saying that she heard about it on the radio. Ray says that Devlin is finished, while Diane takes the innocent until proven guilty approach, which McManus takes exception to as they share a knowing look between each other. Leo has been pestered by all the major news outlets for interviews with Jiggy, and McManus says let anyone and everyone have an interview until Devlin resigns. Pete doubts that Devlin is going to allow that sort of media access, but Leo drops the bomb that Devlin is doing just that, as we hear Devlin on the TV denying the allegations, saying that he has never bought drugs from anyone and never will, and that he doesn't know Jiggy Walker in the slightest. He calls them the latest in a long series of false partisan accusations perpetuated by a scandal-hungry press, which was the 1998 way of saying, you're fake news. Devlin says that he is going to go to Oz and meet face-to-face with Jiggy, and invites the media to join him. The whole of M-City is watching the report on TV, and McManus is stood at the back watching with Saeed. He tells Saeed that he heard it was him that put the calls into the press. 
Zaid asks if that's a crime or not, but Man is saying that he just wishes he had told him first as he chuckles and walks away. Saeed doesn't look as amused as McManus does, despite them seemingly finding some actual common ground with their dislike for Devlin. A press conference is held as Devlin shows results from two physical examinations, and he even has an aide pass out copies to the press. Unlike President Trump, who recently just waved a piece of paper around saying, look, look, there's the agreement, Devlin presents evidence that there is no indication of any illegal substances in his system. He then asks, bring me Jiggy Walker and bring me my accuser. He's very biblical in how he says it, calling back once again to his position atop Mount Olympus. Jiggy makes his way to the podium through the press who are asking all sorts of questions, but Devlin is in complete control of all of this, and he asks Jiggy about a claim that he sold Devlin two grams of crack cocaine on a certain date. Jiggy says that's true, but Devlin presents evidence that he was at an event at the White House on that date, so nearly 250 miles away, and asks how he could be in two places at once. Jiggy then tries to say that he sold it to an aide, but the aide was in Washington with Devlin. It all quickly goes wrong for Jiggy, as even his cousin denies being part of any transaction. Jiggy eventually admits that he lied about the whole thing as we cut back to the classroom in M-City with Saeed and McManus meeting with Jiggy. Saeed asks why he lied, Jiggy saying that he's been in and out of prison his whole life and that when you come in, you need to be a somebody in order to get respect and so that the others don't fuck with you. McManus asks about the decision to go public with the lie and Jiggy says that it was Saeed that convinced him, filling his head with noise about getting released and figured it was worth a shot. Saeed says that he must have known he would have been exposed as Jiggy recounts about his first incarceration over at Lardner when he did an 18 year stretch, going in at 17 years of age. Lardner, much like Benchley Memorial, is a fictional facility within the Oz universe, although its name may be based on real-world happenings. Ringgold Lardner Jr., an American screenwriter who, along with nine other filmmakers, was charged with contempt of Congress in 1947 for refusing to answer questions regarding alleged connections with the Communist Party, served nine months at FCI Danbury in Fairfield County, Connecticut, about 60 miles outside of New York City. Jiggy talks about how his family came to visit him regularly, but as time went on they would visit less and less, and eventually he had no visitors. So he figured if he became a superstar and got on TV, then maybe people would visit for longer, or at least he wouldn't be forgotten about. Saeed seems at a loss for words for once and goes to leave as Jiggy tells him fight the power, another public enemy reference which I'm sure McManus will have loved. McManus tells Jiggy that he's been transferred to Genpop as we cut to Devlin on the phone in Leo's office. He's saying, I know it's shocking what some people will do, before saying, thank you, Mr. President. The timing of what happens in this episode to what happened in the world on this day, the series must have been written from around January of 1998, when the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal first came to light. The only thing letting it down here is Bill Clinton coming clean the very same day this went to air. Devlin tells Leo that all in all it was a good day, as Leo asks whether or not he set the whole thing up. Devlin, despite having the look of a cocky prick on his face at all times, tells him no and that he simply took advantage of the situation, as we see Jiggy Walker disappear into the Genpop crowd to close out Act 2. Governor, <laughs> you didn't set all this up, did you? You didn't hire Walker to lie, did you? No. No, I simply took advantage of the situation. I've been accused of so many things in the past year or so that when I realized I could actually prove my innocence in this one, well, it tinges all the other charges with a wonderful veneer of doubt. Hmm. 
favor. He leased a cheeky walker. three kicks off and oh fucking hell it's William Giles I bet he isn't saying much. Sister Peter's at his cell door with Leo and she reminds us about Giles witnessing her husband's murder on Sycamore and Broom after she finally cracked the code last time out. Leo asks Pete what her plan is to get Giles to talk and she says that she wants to speak to Augustus as he used to be in the cell next to Giles when they were both housed in Unit B before the opening of M City. And with that we cut to Pete talking to Augustus in the hallway. She asks if Giles ever talked about his life on the outside, but Augustus said that he may have done, but he never properly listened, as Giles would just go on and on, to the point that he eventually just tuned him out. She asks about the day that Giles killed Ron Bibby, Giles' cellmate at the time, and Augustus says that that wasn't any different from any other day, as we see a flashback of Ron rummaging through some stuff on a shelf near the sink when Giles walks into the cell. Ron punches Giles in the face and tries to leave, but Giles stabs him with some sort of weapon, more commonly known as a shank in prison circles. Augustus recounts that Giles was very particular about his teeth, and he would brush them constantly and would guard his toothpaste like it was gold. Pete picks up on the mention of toothpaste and asks what brand Giles used. Augustus takes a moment before saying that it was the same brand he used, which was AIM, which is the word that Giles has been saying over and over. Now we've had mentions about budget cuts and overtime for the staff being eliminated and the education programme being cut, but surely it hasn't gotten to the level that the inmates are having to acquire their own toothpaste. Surely that is something that the prison would issue them, and Sister Pete would have been able to find out what brand of toothpaste was being used by looking through some paperwork. Or just by asking Leo, he'd know that kind of thing, what would have been the warden of the fucking prison. I don't know, this storyline hasn't done anything for me on the whole. While it has given us some backstory to Sister Pete, it hasn't given us anything that couldn't have been done in a much quicker way and one that doesn't make her look a bit daft. Pete goes to visit with Giles to ask him about Ron Bibby. Ron Bibby killed my husband. Can you tell me about it? Gingivitis. Bad. BB, worse, I, eyes, BB, BB, eyes, I. He saw you see him push Leonard off the truck. Do you know why Ron BB murdered my husband? said to you why he pushed my husband off that truck? Sorry. 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 Pete goes to Leo to ask for Giles to be let out of solitary, and he asks her whether or not she's considered that Giles may have been playing her this whole time, but she says that she believes him. Leo, however, says that Giles could be a problem for the rest of the inmates, as he's still prone to violence. But Pete still wants to do something for Giles now that she's got some closure surrounding her husband's death. Guards bring a box to Giles' cell, and there's some great foreboding background music playing here. While not on a par with the final scenes in Seven, you're still left wondering what's in the box. They say it's from Sister Pete, and Giles opened up the box to find a shed load of toothpaste, toothbrushes, and mouthwash, and he's overjoyed with this. He's like a kid on Christmas morning. Like I say, I haven't thought much of this storyline, but at least it had somewhat of a happy outcome. 
This is the last that we see of William Giles for some time, as he's used a bit more sporadically from here on out, but we will see him again. We move to the hospital, where Ryan is meeting with Dr. Prostopnik for a checkup. Pat McNamara playing the doc here. This is the first time we've seen him since episode 5 in series 1. He's complaining that his back is hurting, his house needs a new sewer system, and how his wife wants to spend their wedding anniversary in the Virgin Islands. But other than that, he's hunky-dory. I really like the doc here, and it's a shame he hasn't been around more. He asks how Ryan is feeling, and Ryan mentions about how he saw on TV that marijuana helps with the after-effects of chemotherapy. The doc seems to agree with him, so Ryan asks if he can get hooked up for medicinal purposes. Doc tells him nice try, but Ryan seems to be recovering just fine, and he mentions about how Ryan's hair's growing back, and that this may be his final chemo session. According to the American Cancer Society, studies have shown that marijuana can be helpful in treating nausea and vomiting following sessions of chemotherapy, and that through clinical trials, the use of marijuana has shown that people tend to need less pain medication. More recently, scientists have proved that the chemicals from Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, and please don't ask me to say that again, can slow the growth of certain types of cancer cells. However, there is no evidence to suggest that they can control or cure the disease. Relying on marijuana alone instead of seeking conventional medical treatment may have serious health consequences, and I will link that article in the description of this episode. Ryan asks how Gloria is doing, as he hasn't seen her around lately, and mentions that he heard about her husband being murdered, as we get a flashback of the husband getting into his car, only for Cyril to pop up from the back seat and strangle the man with some sort of cord. Classic way to murder someone right here. It's been seen in a bunch of film and TV over the years. Best one probably being when Carlo Rizzi gets it in The Godfather. And there's echoes of that scene here as the man smashes a window with his elbow while Carlo Rizzi kicked through the windshield. Doc says that the funeral is coming up but Gloria might be back at work as early as tomorrow. And Ryan calls her an amazing woman. Ryan says that when the Doc sees her to give her his best. Doc saying that he will and he seems to believe that Ryan is being genuine. Shannon O'Reilly, who we've also not seen for a couple of episodes, comes for a visit and Ryan introduces her to the doc, which he says is a pleasure and a half. She starts to kiss Ryan, but he pushes her away and mentions about how she hasn't been to see him lately, and she says that she's had to look after Cyril. Ryan mentions that he's called his cousin Matthew, who I don't think we ever see, and he has agreed to take Cyril in, and he tells Shannon that they are through. Shannon asks why, Ryan saying that he has found someone else, which Shannon scoffs at, but soon sees that Ryan is being serious. Two ways you could look at this, I suppose. The first being that Ryan has completely fallen for Gloria, and that he's going to try and pursue that. But on the flip side, you might remember about him mentioning to Cyril about going to live somewhere else, and allowing Shannon to get on with her own life. Ever since we were introduced to Shannon, it's been questionable as to how much Ryan actually loves her, and maybe in some way he's doing this so that Shannon can move on and be happy with someone else. Cut to the changing room where Gloria is getting ready to start her shift. McManus and his big brown coat enter and he asks her what she's doing back so soon. Gloria says that she has to work and it's not like she has anything else to do, but McManus tells her that she should take a vacation. She asks where and I was just thinking that maybe she and Sister Pete could take that trip to Pago Pago, that looked really nice. She admits she and Preston, her husband, didn't have the best marriage, but they really loved each other. I mean, you did separate for a while and you were banging McManus for a bit, so did you really love him? Just saying. She asks why Preston had to die as we cut to a flashback of Cyril walking down a street. He gets spooked by a police car which pulls up beside him and he legs it into a nearby alley. He's quickly cornered by more police as he throws his hands up in surrender, and we get another of the frozen action with a push-in camera shot along with Cyril's prison number. Prisoner number 98P284, Cyril O'Reilly. Convicted July 1st, 98. 
Murder in the first degree. Sentence, life. Up for parole in 60 years. So Cyril O'Reilly we've seen a couple of times already, but this is him joining the main cast of the show. And as I've mentioned previously, he's played by Scott William Winters, and as you can tell just by looking at him, is the real-life brother of Dean Winters, his on-screen brother Ryan. As I've still yet to do a proper introduction for Dean Winters, I'm going to try and go for a twofer with his brother Scott on this one. So, Dean Winters, born July 20th, 1964, and Scott William Winters, born August 5th, 1965, were born in New York City before moving to Scottsdale, Arizona, and both men graduated from the Boffrey College Preparatory in Phoenix. Dean graduated from Colorado College in 1986, while Scott attended Northwestern University in Chicago. Naturally, being the older of the two, Dean made his first appearances on TV in 1995, while also trying to pursue a career in stand-up comedy, performing at New York venues such as Catch a Rising Star and The Comedy Cellar, and he even had his own HBO special, which ultimately landed him the role of Ryan O'Reilly on Oz. Scott's first credited roles came in 1996 with appearances in the TV movie The Prosecutors and the film The People vs. Larry Flint. Scott also appeared in one episode of Promised Land on CBS, but to answer a much bigger question regarding both men, we're gonna have to play another round of Homicide or Nomicide. So on this edition of Homicide on Homicide, we've got Dean Winters, Scott William Winters, and I'm also going to throw in Louis Guzman and LL Cool J into the mix as well. Slight variation on this round too, in that only one of these had not appeared on Homicide Life on the Street by the time this episode aired. So have a think, and I will let you know the answer at the end of the show. We get a quick shot of Gloria being told the news by McManus and Sister Pete about Cyril killing her husband. And we can't really hear a whole lot of what is happening, but we do hear Gloria say that Preston is dead because of me, before we cut to a shot of her and McManus marching their way to Brian's pod. He seems thrilled to see her and goes to give her a hug, but she pushes him away and says that while it might sound cliche, she became a doctor to help people and that she saved Ryan's life, and he destroyed hers in return. Gloria leaves the pod, leaving McManus to talk with Ryan as Augustus tries to contemplate sleeping on roses as we close out Act 3. Your brother Cyril confessed. Shit. Cops won't interrogate you, although he's refusing to implicate you in the murder. He's gonna take the rap himself. McManus. You gotta see that I love her, man. Love? What the fuck do you know about love? Oh. What do you know? Huh? What do any of us? I know it's not a reason to commit murder. Yeah, well then maybe you've never really been in love. Life is no better roses. Then again, which of us really wants to sleep on a bed of roses? You never get any rest. Every time you toss and turn, you hit another thumb. Act 4 then, and it kicks off with Beecher having another nightmare and hitting that girl with his car again. Keller wakes him up and Beecher is sweating profusely, so starts to change his clothes. Keller notices the swastika tattoo on Beecher's ass, and we get a massive close-up of Lee Turgeson's cheek. 
and Keller says, we need to do something about that tattoo. Peter asks, what are we going to do? Keller saying to let him think about it, and then places his hand on Beecher's cheek, face, not ass, tells him that it'll be alright before getting back into bed. Beecher takes a long look at Keller, seemingly admiring his turned body, before eventually getting back into bed himself. He goes to work the next day and Sister Pete says good morning to him, but she can tell that something is bothering him, saying that she sees him almost every day and can tell the difference between nothing and nothing. Beecher hesitates to talk, and it's a good 10 or 15 seconds before he finally manages to get the words out, saying two men shouldn't love each other, and that they can't feel the same things a man and a woman feel, and gives an example of if a man has a lot of bad things happen to him, and if another man were to comfort him, then that's all it is, and that isn't really love. Pete says that some men in Oz are homosexual and some need sex, but Beecher cuts her off saying that he isn't talking about sex, he's talking about love. He says that he had sex with Schillinger and that it was brutal and unloving, which, yeah, I can imagine it was, and he says that this is different. Pete asks Beecher if he is in love with another man, and he eventually answers that he thinks he is. So clearly Beecher is still having a crisis with his beliefs, which he has been having for a long time now, after everything that's happened with Schillinger, and has been brought to light again following Genevieve's death. After everything that has happened to him, he seems to struggle to define who he really is, and he hasn't experienced true affection since coming to Oz. Schillinger didn't love him, that much is obvious, it's just a power thing to him. And we saw when Genevieve visited that things were not how they normally would be between a loving husband and wife. Since Keller came to Oz, he has been the first person to seemingly show Beecher any sort of affection. And while it might be love in Beecher's eyes, what he has with Keller could simply be a coping mechanism for everything that has gone before. Officer Menia conducts the count and everyone gets into their pods for the night. Keller draws a bunch of little designs on a piece of paper to show what they could do to solve their tattoo problem, but Beecher says that as much as he wants to get rid of the thing, he remembers how painful it was the first time around, and both of his designs mean a lot of burnt flesh. This leads Keller onto the second part of his plan and he pulls out a glass jar from underneath his pillow, telling Beecher that it is moonshine, 101% pure alcohol, and much like in the Old West, take a couple of snorts of it and you won't feel anything. At the time of this episode, moonshine was still illegal, so this will have been made in an illegal distillery. While liquor control laws have always been applied to moonshine, particularly between 1917 and the introduction of the 18th Amendment until its repeal in 1933, more commonly known as the Age of Prohibition, Moonshine was legalised in the US in 2010, and applicable laws have been enforced by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, or ATF for short, and not the much funnier sounding Batfee. Beecher tells Keller that he's been sober for over a year, which Keller says, so what? As Beecher explains that he is an alcoholic, and that every bad thing in his life has happened because of booze. He also mentions that he's just starting to feel like he's beating his heroin addiction, which I had completely forgotten about at this point, because it hasn't been mentioned at any point in this second series from what I can recall. Other factors that could have been a concern for Beecher here include excessive alcohol poisoning if he drank too much, unrecognised contamination by wood alcohol because fuck knows what's actually been used to make it, and contamination by dangerous metals, particularly lead, used in the normally homemade distillation equipment. Keller takes the hump and tears his tattoo designs out of his notepad, but Beecher tells him not to get mad, but Keller says it was a stupid idea and that he never thinks things through. Beecher says he hates it when Keller is self-deprecating, and he even describes it as being cute, which has got to be one of the more bizarre pickup lines to have ever been attempted. He asks Keller where he got the moonshine, and turns out there's a still up in Unit B, and he places the jar on the shelves behind some toilet roll. Later on, the lights go out and we see Beecher awaken from another nightmare. 
He jumps down from his bunk and goes to wash his hands, but looks over to the shelf. He then looks across to Keller, who he has heard moving and maybe thought he was about to get caught, but Keller rolls to his side, and Beecher grabs the jar of moonshine. He opens it up and recoils at the smell, it must have been strong stuff, and he almost takes a swig, but places it back on the shelf and gets back into bed. We see Keller open his eyes before cutting to the gym where he's giving an update to Schillinger. So he didn't drink the moonshine? Nope. Fuck. He was close. Close, fuck close. The whole idea here, the whole beauty of this plan, is that we keep digging up all the guilt and shame, all the shit that Beecher's got inside of him until he can't live with himself. Until Beecher destroys himself. The alcohol's the key. No, Vern, I'm the key. Beecher loves me. He won't admit it yet, but he loves me. I'll get him a drink. I win. Fuck you, you fucking redneck. I eat me, jizzball. You'd like that, wouldn't you? So Beecher nearly catches Keller and Schillinger talking, and they have to improvise a little fight, which is actually quite funny. Keller calls Schillinger a Nazi, and Schillinger just replies with, Eat me, um, jizzball? It's as good as he could come up with on the spot. Beecher asks Keller what it was all about, but he tells Beecher that he doesn't know, and that he hates what Schillinger did to Beecher, before they get onto the mats and have another bout of freestyle wrestling. Keller even shouts cocksucker to throw the scent off of him and Schillinger being connected. Cut to Keller and Beecher in the shower, once again having to talk over the running water, and Keller is asking why Beecher's parents get to decide when Beecher gets to see his kids. Beecher says that isn't the case, but more that the kids shouldn't see him how he is right now. Keller tells him that he is their father, and that they need him after everything they've been through, and that despite everything that Beecher has gone through since coming to Oz, they're still his blood. Cut to the playroom where we see Beecher's children, and we pan across to Beecher who is looking more like his old self having shaved off his beard and goatee and they both run over to give him a big hug and tell him that they miss him and love him. It's a really sweet moment, and moments like this mean so much as they really stand out against the grim backdrop of everything else going on in the show. It's only a short scene, but it's really well done. Back in the laundry room, and Keller looks a little spaced out, and he gets a shock when Beecher knocks on the window. Beecher enters the room asking if Keller is doing laundry, and Keller answers in a drawn-out effort before he brings the jar of moonshine up from out of the shot and takes a gulp. Great reveal there. He says that he's celebrating Beecher's reunion with his kids, but Beecher tries to take it away from him, saying that Keller is nuts and the guards will see. But Keller pushes him away, saying that he doesn't care, and tells Beecher that he looks good without the beard. I've got to admit, I was a little disappointed to see Beecher lose his face fuzz. He looked awesome with that. Keller then tells Beecher about his previous love life, saying that he's been married three times before. Four if you count Bonnie, because he married her twice. The dramatic pause before he says Bonnie is hilarious too, some great drunk acting from Maloney here. Beecher asks why did Keller get married so often, Keller saying that he's old-fashioned and that he marries them before he fucks them. He then says that the problem is the sex, and that it's never as good as what it was in the beginning, and once that's gone, he realises that he has nothing in common with them. Beecher says that he and Genevieve had everything in common until he came to Oz, and Keller mentions that Bonnie had just got married again, and how he shouldn't care seeing as he divorced her twice, and that he has no claim to her. Beecher tries to get Keller to come over to him, but eventually goes over himself and puts his hands on Keller's shoulders. They stare into each other's eyes before Beecher breaks the silence, telling Keller that he loves him. Keller responds, saying, I love you, Toby, and they share a passionate kiss. A guard tries to break them up, banging on the window of the laundry room, but Keller throws the jar of moonshine at the window, and it smashes everywhere. He's then led away, kicking and screaming by a couple of guards as Beecher looks on. 
We see Keller get thrown into the hole, completely Billy Bollocks, still screaming before laying down on his stomach. And you see a smile just creep across his face, so clearly all of this has been an act, and he now has Beecher right where he wants him, and he knows that he is in Beecher's head. So either Keller can really hold his liquor, or he was drinking something weaker than the moonshine. At night, Beecher is pacing back and forth in his pod, and he seems to try and take his mind off of Keller and tries folding some clothes. We get a flashback of him meeting with his kids as well as the kiss with Keller, and he continues to flip out. He's like a junkie going through withdrawal. He lays down on Keller's bunk, putting his hands beneath the pillow, and he finds another jar of moonshine, so Keller seems to have quite a supply of this stuff to tempt Beecher with. He takes the jar over to the sink and removes the lid. He recites the nursery rhyme, Hannah Bantry in the Pantry, this one having particular meaning as it ends up with Hannah Bantry finding herself alone, mirroring Beecher's situation perfectly. Beecher kisses his own reflection as he takes a drink of the moonshine, spluttering at the first sip before managing, over several gulps, to polish off the whole jar, which will no doubt leave him in a right state. Augustus narrates about how a bed is the best friend we've got, as we see several inmates in various levels of comfort, some sleeping, some not, to close out the episode. At the end of the day, a bed is the best friend you got. Sure, the mattress may be lumpy, springs may have sprung, the bed itself may be in some seedy motel or in ours. But the bed, it beckons you, comforts, cradles till you sleep. And if you're lucky enough to have the right person lying next to you, shit, there ain't a reason you got to get out of that bed come morning. Good night. Sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs bite. <laughs> so there you go, Series 2, Episode 6, Strange Bedfellows. As has been the case with a lot of Series 2, this had its good parts and its bad parts, but I enjoyed the episode for the most part. I will say that I'm happy to see the back of William Giles for a while, and that's not a slight on any of the actors involved with it but that storyline really didn't seem to go anywhere for the amount of time that it was given. However, this episode does feature the landmark moment of Beecher making his feelings for Keller known, and his relapse into alcohol places the power firmly back into Schillinger's possession. We also met El Cid for a shake-up in the Latino gang. They've been in the background for much of this series. And of course we got that brutal scene of Adebisi raping Shibeta, which elevated Adebisi and put all of us on notice. While there was some brutal violence and sodomy in this episode, there were no deaths to report other than the exit of Beach's beard, which will be sadly missed. This episode, however, does see some characters depart the show, the first of which being Shannon O'Reilly, played by Anika Peterson. Following her short run on Oz, Peterson maintained a steady career on TV, including appearances in shows like Third Watch, The West Wing, CSI New York, and Medium, among others. Her latest credited role is for an appearance in the movie Blackline, The Beirut Contract, which at the time of recording is in post-production. We also say goodbye to Dr. Prostopnik, played by Pat McNamara. Following his appearances on Oz, Pat appeared in Party of Five, where he also played a doctor, and in 1999 appeared in film as Police Commissioner Jacobs in favour of the media students, Fight Club. In 2002, he appeared in the movies Ash Wednesday and The Guru, before taking a long break from film and TV acting, returning in 2017 with an appearance in Through, The Hereafter Remains Unknown. And joining the Oz One and Done Club is LL Cool J as Jiggy Walker. Following the cancellation of Jay's sitcom In the House by UPN, 
the show returned to NBC in 1999 for one final season. However, ratings were low as the series was aired in the late night time slot. Following the completion of In the House, Jay began to appear more regularly in movies, including roles in Deep Blue Sea, Any Given Sunday, Charlie's Angels, and in 2002 landed a starring role in the fucking awful remake of Rollerball. In 2009, Jay appeared in the sixth season finale event of NCIS on CBS, playing the part of Sam Hanna. This appearance tied in with the launch of the spin-off series NCIS Los Angeles, with Jay starring alongside Chris O'Donnell. Still airing today, the show's just completed its 10th season and has been renewed for an 11th, with the show set to return to CBS in September 2019. Since 2015, Jay has acted as both a host and a producer on Lip Sync Battle, which is currently airing its 5th season on the Paramount Network. In addition to his acting, Jay continued to release music on a regular basis through the early noughties, and was a winner at the NAACP Image Awards for Outstanding Rap and Hip Hop Artist in 2001, and for Outstanding Male Artist in 2003. Also in 2003, Jay was awarded the Quincy Jones Award for Outstanding Career Achievements in the Field of Entertainment at the Soul Train Awards. Jay's other ventures include the launch of the Jump and Ball Tournament in St Albans, Queens, which he launched along with New York Senator Malcolm Smith, as well as the release of the book LL Cool J's Platinum 360 Diet and Lifestyle. On the production front, this is the last episode of the show directed by Alan Taylor. Following Oz, Taylor would go on to direct a number of episodes for various HBO projects, including Six Feet Under, Carnivale, Deadwood, and Boardwalk Empire, as well as six episodes of Sex and the City, nine episodes of The Sopranos, and seven episodes of Game of Thrones, where he also served as co-executive producer during the show's second season, and also worked as a consulting producer on ten episodes of Bored to Death. Taylor also directed four episodes of Mad Men for AMC, and in film joined the Marvel Cinematic Universe, directing Thor The Dark World, as well as Terminator Genesis for Paramount Pictures in 2015. In 2016, Taylor served as executive producer on a pilot of Roadside Picnic, an adaptation of the 1972 science fiction novel by Arkady and Boris Strugatsky, which was produced for WGN America, although the network passed on ordering a full series. At the time of recording, he is filming the Sopranos prequel movie The Many Saints of Newark, and is set to direct on the TV series The Swarm, which is currently in pre-production. My MVP for this episode, a little bit easier to choose from this time out, and I'm going to give it to Kareem Saeed. I thought he was great in the scene where he told Schillinger that he had no case, and you were left wondering if he ever truly believed him in the first place. Knowing that Schillinger was guilty, he was able to use his position to secure the punishment that Schillinger deserves, so for those reasons, Saeed wins the award this time round. And in the result of Homicide on Homicide, it was, of course, LL Cool J who had never appeared in Homicide prior to this episode airing. Dean Winters had a recurring role in what was his TV acting debut in 1995, Scott William Winters appeared in the show's fifth season, while Louis Guzman appeared in an early season one episode. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can head on over to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castro Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, or wherever you get your podcasts from. The entire Series 1 is there, as well as what we've recovered in Series 2 so far, and you'll also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes. Help the show out by giving it a 5-star review wherever you can. It helps the show gain exposure and appear on the charts to help the show grow. And if you want to get in touch with the show with any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can do so by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow the show on social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at Inside. Oz podcast. Next time on Inside Oz, we will be looking at Series 2, Episode 7, Animal Farm, where Schillinger takes Cyril under his wing, 
El Cid has an ultimatum for Miguel, and what does the future hold for the Italians? All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone. It took so long to remember just what happened.